Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. Our guest is Ted Rao. He is a political cartoonist, opinion columnist, graphic novelist, and occasional war correspondent whose work has appeared in hundreds of publications, including the New York Times, Washington Post, Village Voice, and Los Angeles Times. His latest books are Political Suicide, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, and The Stringer, which came out in April of 2021. I'm joined by 14 of my Harvard classmates. Bill Collins, I'm in Aiken, South Carolina, with my wife here. She's sitting across the room, so she likes to listen to us. She doesn't often contribute, but she does like to listen. Harvard 63, 20 years in the Navy, then worked for Westinghouse, then Westinghouse Savannah River Company, and now retired from paying work, do a fair amount of volunteer work. Okay, Hemp. Okay, I was just wondering if Mrs. Collins would like to speak to us. Assuming her name is Mrs. Collins. Well, Mrs. Just Collins, say hello. yes. Well, she's she's doing something right now. Maybe she'll put her face in front of us in a, little, okay. In a few minutes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm the Hampton Howell, class of '63, Harvard. Uh, live in Nashville, psychologist, and feeling guilty because last week I talked over. I, I got excited about something and I talked over somebody and I don't remember who it was. But I apologize for 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 that bad habit. Okay. Next, Jerry. You're forgiven, Hamp. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Good morning, uh, Jerry Secundi, um, environmental lawyer, <clears throat> federal government, state government, nonprofits, oil company, etc. Spent some time in the Peace Corps. Also, class of '63, and I grew up in Washington D.C. with Herb Locke, and I miss his cartoons <laughs> to this day. <laughs> yeah. Oh, great, uh, uh, John Woodford. Hi, here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where my fellow, our fellow 1963 member, my wife, Eliza, is also here. I'm trying to get her to go on. Every now and then she does come on, but she doesn't hear very well, so that <coughs> limits enjoyment. Alden. Uh, well, I was born in Mass General. Uh, <laughs> Grew up in Northwestern Connecticut, uh, class with all the rest of these folks, except Spencer, who's older than we are, um, and moved sort of moved across the country, living just south of San Francisco, where my wife and I have, I have a consulting uh, firm which works with nonprofits. All righty, Peter Grilly. Um, Yeah, I'm started in class of '63 but uh, graduated actually in 65. I took a couple of years off to study in Japan. Actually, I grew up in Japan, uh, came to Harvard feeling very much like a foreign student. Um, <clears throat> I now live in the town of Harvard, not the school, but the town <clears throat> of Harvard. And um, I'm a recent member of this group and I'm looking forward to hearing your talk. Okay, Nick. Uh, Nick Bancroft, Medfield, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston, class of 63. Um, Peace Corps for a couple of years, business school, then back in, to Boston, where I spent most of my uh, business career with investments and trusts and wills and all that kind of stuff. But um, 
I'm looking forward to hearing your descriptions of your trips uh, <clears throat> across uh, <clears throat> um, Asia, uh, right out of uh, Harvard in 1963, summer of 63, I spent seven or eight months <clears throat> traveling from London <clears throat> to uh, Nepal via Land Rover and uh, had a, um, some interesting times along the way. So I'd, I'd, I'd like to hear some of your views about uh, <clears throat> uh, what it's like dealing with or how you, how you uh, look at um, uh, tribal values <clears throat> along that route. And then how do you make fun of it in order to perhaps uh, make them learn more or maybe you learn more? <clears throat> okay, Spencer. I am Spencer. I'm uh, class of 61 and uh, I am uh, involved in uh, uh, sustainable development uh, since 1987. And before that was in uh, uh, black economic development, which turned into, you know, like the international type and then to sustainable development. David Allen. Also in Massachusetts, Concord, also just outside of Boston, uh, also class of 63. Uh, I've done a variety of things in my life. Uh, earlier on, new ventures and life <laughs> in university and more recently, as an activist, uh, both locally and globally. Uh, and also, as you can see, uh, even managed to do this in the Vietnam era, as I think more than one of us here did. Um, certainly looking forward to today's discussion. Okay, George. George Jones, also in Ann Arbor. I live about two miles from John and Eliza. Also class of 63, spent most of my life as a biochemist slash molecular biologist. And one of the joys of my life right now is that college football has started again. <laughs> okay, good, good. Jeff. Uh, hi, I'm Jeff Fox, also class of 63. Uh, after graduation, went immediately to Venezuela, and started, which started me uh, a long period of, in, of involvement in uh, Latin America, um, mostly as, as a sociologist. Professor of sociology for many years, uh, researcher, uh, wrote several books um, on various about Latin America. In fact, one of them we discussed here in one of our sessions. Uh, and uh, now I'm writing fiction. I live in Spain. Hey, Doug. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Doug Shapiro, also class of 63, have an MD and a PhD. Um, degree. I spent uh, a big chunk of my life uh, diving and snorkeling around on coral reefs around the world and surrounding myself with uh, lush, great natural beauty, which has had a big impact on my uh, visual uh, interactions with the world. Anyway, I'm looking forward to today's conversation. Okay, Marcy. Um, I'm living and working in New York City. I was the leader in the iconic battle to get billions of dollars reallocated from the Westway Highway and Hudson River real estate venture to mass transit. I'm now trying to keep that history from being rewritten to support bad policies today. And uh, the main attack for the 
last half century on our side of these battles has been the perfect is the enemy of the good. And so that's why I was thrilled to read Ted's uh, point of view that pushing for what makes sense and what can work uh, is a worthy goal. I'm David Lalivelle, class of 63. I'm a historian of India, and I spent some years actually working with Ted uh, at the School of General Studies. I don't know if you remember me, but uh, very well. uh, at Columbia University. Uh, I live in New York in Washington Heights. <laughs> okay, David Othmer. David Othmer, class of 63, uh, born in Medford, Mass, but grew up in South America. And Peter, one of the countries I lived in was Guatemala, next door to an archaeologist named Edwin uh, uh, Ed, Ed Shook, S-H-O-O-K, and he lived in Harvard when he was not tromping around the, the jungles of Guatemala. He, he was one of the people who discovered Tikal. So it was a long time ago. He's long gone, but the family may still be there. Yeah. Uh, that's my, cool. my, con my connection to Harvard, uh, to the town of Harvard. I spent most of my career in public broadcasting at WNET in New York City and WHYY here in Philadelphia, where we live. Okay, and Ted, welcome. Thank you. We're delighted to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's I'm, I'm honored. Okay, well, so obviously uh, I'm an editorial cartoonist and a columnist, and I write uh, books. I'm currently working on uh, some works of fiction. I'm sort of trying to pivot uh, due to the crisis in journalism uh, into things that will, you know, be more sustainable in coming years. Uh, my background is I, I grew up in uh, Dayton, Ohio, uh, south of Dayton, Ohio, uh, and I lived there. Uh, I had a single mom. It was just me and her uh, until I went to college. I went to Columbia uh, for three years. They uh, school of engineering. Uh, I was an applied physics and nuclear engineering major, but uh, they expelled me correctly. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, it was definitely the right decision. It's the decision I would have made. Uh, and uh, then I went for four and a half years. I was uh, bouncing around New York City in the late 80s doing what you know people did then. I worked for Bear Stearns, uh, the Industrial Bank of Japan. I was a got up got to be a, a, a loan officer um, and then uh, the recession hit I went back to School of General Studies in 1990 and graduated a year later from Columbia uh, with a with a honors in history uh, Vichy France was my area of specialty um, and I did you know I, I knew I wanted to be a cartoonist and a journalist but it was hard to break in so I got syndicated in 91, but I would say, well, I didn't really become full-time until 95. So I had a variety of day jobs. I worked uh, in the admissions office at General Studies. I uh, went to, San I lived in Berkeley where I worked for uh, a, a recycled paper and printing company. I had a bunch of esoteric jobs. I drove a taxi. Um, and then finally uh, in 95, uh, my career sort of uh, made it in syndication won some awards, got some uh, a nice client list, got some, and things sort of took off from there. So uh, since then, I've done also a considerable amount of talk radio. Um, I, I did KFI. Uh, I was at KFI uh, AM 640 in Los Angeles. I was at KFIR in San Francisco. 
Um, I've done some freelance stuff for BBC um, and for uh, the old ABC News midnight uh, late night feed called World News Now. Um, the uh, so basically, I've just had a uh, you know kind of a esoteric career. Um, probably one of the things that makes me unique in cartooning is that I've never been on staff at a newspaper or a magazine. Um, it's I've only been uh, I've always been just uh, survived on freelance and syndication, which is a little unusual. Now that's the only way because there are no jobs like that. And uh, you know, and I'm and I, I think arguably I'm further to the left than most of my peers. Um, so oh, I also do stuff regular. I'm a regular contributor to the Wall Street Journal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm. <clears throat> Editorial board or the other? Uh, no, I mean, yeah, I, I, I do, I do uh, op eds. I'm, I'm a token lefty, uh, so. <laughs> so questions, John? Yeah, I wondered, uh, Ted, all the uh, the material in the in the stringer. I, I would urge everyone to get the stringer. It's really a profound look at not just the news industry but also the you know, the information part, the propaganda part of the military industrial complex. And it's very, it's quite complicated. First, I wondered, I noticed you didn't draw them. It's wonderful drawings by, I guess, Calejo was his name. I wondered how you happened not to draw them. But first I wondered, did you go to all those places? It seems like you must have gone to uh, Central Asia. I noticed that you went there. Were you, when did you travel to all of those places? So yeah, no, I definitely, um, yeah, I, I traveled to most of those places. Um, I've started going to Central Asia in 1997. I had a job as a uh, contributing editor and staff writer for a magazine called POV, which doesn't exist anymore. It was kind of like early mm. sort of proto watered down Maxim. Um, it was like, and so I was, um, we had suddenly a lot of money um, it seems like such a different time. Uh, but my editor came to me one time and said, like, Ted, we, we just got $25 million from Freedom of Communications. Can you help me spend it? And I was like, I can help you do that. So, so uh, I had always wanted to go to, uh, I'd always wanted to drive the, the Silk Road. I'd wanted, so the plan was to uh, fly to Beijing, buy a car, and drive across Central Asia to Istanbul and then d ditch or sell the car. Uh, mm -hmm. And I won't, you know, give away how that all worked out, but I did go, and um, we, and so um, my my friend and I, who's now my Alan Foyer, who's now at the New York Times, we uh, went to China, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, uh, Iran, Turkmenistan, and so on, uh, and Turkey, of course. Yeah. Um, I, 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 there's a lot of places in the stringer that I have not gone to, and uh, basically, there pop. Uh, there's I've only done I've done like 21 books. And uh, there's only one, only two that I didn't draw in the cartoons. And it's one of them. It, the other one's uh, another book, sort of about my experience of being thrown out of Columbia uh, as an engineering school called The Year of Loving Dangerously. Um, and those, uh, that, both of those books were drawn by Pablo. And in the case of uh, The Stringer, I thought it really, you know, I have a pretty, abst a pretty abstract, sort of crude, primitive drawing style. And I, I thought this book really needed that cinematic, um, you know, sort of vibe where you'd really feel like you had a sense of place and like, hey, now I'm in Saudi Arabia. Hey, now I'm in Kurdistan. Hey, now I'm in Bolivia. So, and I, I knew that I didn't have the chops for that. And 
Also, I wanted to focus on the writing. Um, graphic novels are really hard. Um, they're they're very hard, and they don't pay that as well as they should. So it's kind of like easier for me to when I, if I want to really focus and get the writing just down to have to hire a, a writer to illustrate them. Uh, I have a, I'm working on a new book now with a, a, a friend of mine who's a conservative editorial cartoonist, Scott Stantis, um, and he's he's writing he's drawing it and I'm writing it again. So it's it's a formula that I like. It's also laziness. But, you know, how do you get along with uh, with uh, your conservative uh, co-author co in that case? Oh, uh, we're we're best friends. I mean, literally, I was just on the phone with him before this broadcast. Uh, before this podcast, um, I was. Uh, we we do a podcast together called DMZ America, where you know we we definitely agree disagree about a lot of political issues um and but we do it but we respect each other love each other like brothers so um i have never really had um a lot of trouble getting along with conservatives even though i'm you know pretty far on the left um i sometimes have more trouble with like people who are, whose politics are more closely aligned to mine and i think my theory is it's because when you're so close it's almost like, oh, if I could just like yell at this person a little bit, then like they would be convinced that to do it exactly my way. Whereas if someone's totally on the other side of the ideological spectrum, you know, you can't really convince them. So you don't even try. Tell us about the crisis in journalism. Where's your take on that? What, what you here? Well, I mean, it's, uh, you know, obviously it's not news um, that the Internet and the uh, inability of the uh, of the powers that be that run newspapers and broadcast outlets um, has led to a terrible situation in American journalism. I mean, so what's happened is that the profit model has broken down. And as a result, um, when there's no money coming in, there's the, you know, one of the things that goes is quality control. And you can't, um, so, you know, for example, um, a lot of newspapers that have even tried to revive uh, under billionaires like the Washington Post and the LA Times um, have ended up, they didn't bring back their experienced journalists. Uh, they hired young ones who uh, are in their 20s. And, you know, it's not a coincidence. It's not just because they're vibrant uh, and youthful. It's also because they, you know, work for a third of the pay. Um, and, you know, I think a, a good newsroom is is diverse in every respect, age, uh, you know, uh, you know, demographically, uh, class, everything, and and you just don't have that anymore. You know, um, basically, uh, the problem is that uh, news news organizations just don't know how to monetize uh, the news anymore. Um, and they, you know, they kind of made a lot of mistakes back. Uh, I mean, you know, there there were some unforced errors. You know, in the '90s, for example, uh, I worked at the Village Voice, and the Village Voice completely classified and uh, ads in New York City. Uh, personal ads, real estate ads, help wanted. And then, um, you know, they could have uh, brought that to the web and then adjusted to the new reality and basically been Craigslist before Craigslist, but they just didn't. They just kept dithering. And you'd see, you see decision, decisions like that across the board, um, you know, at, uh, at, at, at daily newspapers, um, they had they made this insane decision to give it away for free, uh, no paywalls, um, and 
that's obviously was catastrophic. Um, you know, and then the and television and radio have gone the infotainment route. Um, so, you know, some of it is like, I don't think all the changes are bad. I mean, for example, I think the fact that MSNBC and Fox wear their ideologies on their sleeves is not a bad thing because the ideologies were always there. And it's, uh, you know, I think it's fine for the viewers to see it. Um, and, but what is worrisome is that there's really no one around to do local news coverage anymore. There's no one around to do uh, investigative journalism because it's too expensive. Uh, you know, there's never going to be like someone who goes undercover at like the Creed psych Psychiatric uh, Institution and, uh, you know, does that for a year or two and, uh, and then comes back and writes one blockbuster story or one blockbuster series. That's just not going to happen anymore um, because there's no money. And uh, I, don't, I don't know how to fix it. If I knew how to fix it, I'd be out fixing it now. But, uh, but it's, but, you know, I mean, we can all see the results and, and, the, you know, the, 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 one of the results is that nobody believes, uh, you know, everybody's got their own truth. Uh, you know, everybody, you know, literally some people think Hunter Biden's laptop is the biggest thing ever. Other people think it's nothing at all. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's just a, uh, it is a very, um, you know, it's, it's worrisome because, you know, if you live in a society where you can't agree on the facts, then you certainly can't agree on the problems, much less the solutions. And I think that's where we at, we're at politically. Um, there's currently no profit incentive and there's no, um, there's certainly no sort of uh, viewer disincentive. Uh, you know, Fox is still the top rated uh, cable news network. So why would they change? Um, it's uh, the government is, you know, correctly does not have the ability to control those con that content or to uh, regulate it, and so and, and they shouldn't. Uh, but so it's kind of like with no outside force, um, you know, it's not like market conditions are resulting in, uh, in any kind of improvement. I don't see uh, any improvement anytime soon. I think it'll continue to get worse, uh, especially, um, you know, I mean, I see lies really across the board. I mean, you know, it's just, and, and really unrespected outlets. I watched President Biden's uh, interview on 60 Minutes this past Sunday, and Scott Pelley sort of just glances off and says, oh, uh, you know, uh, Europe's gonna have trouble this winter because Russia refuses to sell them oil or natural gas. And I'm like, that's not true. Ru Europe is boycotting Russian oil and natural gas. And, you know, it's just that, how can 60 minutes make a mistake like that? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, it's it is it like I mean, I, I think it was probably a mistake rather mm -hmm. than propaganda. But, you know, the but the result of it is people think that it's on it, everything. We now think that every mistake is intentional. And um, and so it, it's incumbent on them to try strive to be accurate. And you can certainly be ideological and accurate. Um, you know, you, you certainly can, but uh, there doesn't seem to be any penalty for lying. I mean, you know, if, whether you're a journalist or an elected official, so why not? But I mean, do you think that news should be free? I mean, how do you, as it used to be in a way? Well, you know, it's funny when that whole, that phrase started, it didn't mean unpaid. <laughs> it, meant, it meant like, you know, liberated, uh, like it was supposed to be able to go across boundaries and, uh, and, and be free and, and be widely disseminated. Um, and uh, somehow, 
the idiots who uh, ran newspapers, and I keep focusing on newspapers because even now they generate 90 plus percent of all news coverage uh, across the board. So newspapers are incredibly important. Um, you know, they, they just didn't get it. Uh, I don't, look, news was never free. We were paying for, you know, there was, it was, it was sponsored by advertisers. Um, we, you know, people paid uh, to subscribe to newspapers, which were heavily subsidized also by advertising. I mean, you know, owning a newspaper was like, as you guys know, it was like minting money. Um, you know, if, if in the 80s and the 70s, if you owned the Akron Beacon uh, News you know, your journal, mm -hmm. you were, you were, you know, you were rich, you know, you were the king of Akron. Um, that's not, uh, that's just not true anymore. So, you know, news is never free. The question is just who's going to pay for it. And, um, and I think the only people who have sort of pointed a way forward are like, you know, like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, um, the, the, you know, publications that uh, know that they're indispensable. You know, it's like, it's like, I call it kind of like the New Yorker model. Like, I actually hate the New Yorker. I hate the cartoons. I hate the writing. I hate the style. I hate the font. But I read it every week. Because <laughs> and if you don't, you know, you, you, you're left out, right? Um, and so like, when you create a product that people have to have, whether they like it or not, that's, that's, that's the key. And uh, if people, you know, people will settle for free crap, if it's good enough. Uh, but if it's not, but if you create something that's so good that you just can't be, you just to be part of the conversation, and to be educated person, you have to pay for it, you will. I mean, People pay twelve dollars a pack for cigarettes. People pay four dollars for a, for a cup of coffee. They will pay for news <laughs> if they have to. Well, how, how do you feel about uh, the the fairness doctrine? Do you think that bringing that back would have some impact on the news? Well, I mean, I I never understood why it went away. Um, I think it's a really uh, no. I think it was a good thing. I mean. You know, you could sort of quit. I'm a big quibbler. It's kind of part of my job. And I would say that, uh, you know, you could certainly say, well, there's certainly more than two sides to every story. I mean, uh, and, you know, just a, a counterpoint to, say, uh, a Republican uh, message is not just a Democratic message. It might also be a progressive message. It might also be a libertarian message. Um, so, but I do think um, the fairness doctrine would prevent a lot of the more egregious statements that just get put at pushed out without any kind of um, you know retort, and maybe the thing that you know. So I wish there were kind of like you know just parent thinking out loud here. Uh, I really wish journalists would hold their in their subjects to the feet to the fire. Uh, you know when there's when they're sub they, they ask a question, they get an answer, and the answer is either not related to the question or it contains it's unclear or it contains outright untruths and then you know most journalists just move on and i think about someone like the uh you know chris matthews who is no more but you know he is he was good at that he would you know keep after he would badger his sub his subjects um you know bill o'reilly would do that um and i think that's you know that that's better um you know basically I don't really know that the press is really doing its job. Mm -hmm. Doug. Oh, yes. Um, if you had to draw two cartoon images, one of a white person and the other of a black person, both viewed through the eyes of critical race theory, what would those cartoons look like? 
<laughs> yes, I don't understand viewed through the lens of critical race. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't. I, I have to admit, I don't understand that lens. I know what critical race theory is, but um, you know, it, it does bring up the the, the point that um, in cartooning and as in so many other forms of media in this country, uh, like whites and particularly white males have always been sort of the norm, the standard, the baseline. And then, uh, you know, sometimes we have to draw, you know, other people. And and so, and they're, they're like the extras. And that's something that I've, you know, since I was a um, young cartoonist, I was very aware of. Um, I grew up uh, reading Pat Oliphant a lot. Um, and I, I now have really come to appreciate his work, but at the time, I saw a lot of bigotry in his work. I thought he uh, he had a lot of racist and sexist images. So I developed a drawing style that was more stripped down and that uh, and that sort of treat tries to treat uh, making it. You know, for example, obviously, you know, I want to make clear that Obama's black, but I don't want to like, but I don't want to make him look different because he's black or draw him in a different style because he's black. So one of the things I tried to do uh, is if you look at my early work from the 90s, and I've done this ever since, you know, um, there will be black and other people of co color in situations in my cartoons where race is not the subject. It might be like a labor management or a corporate board meeting. And, you know, there are black people on the board of corporations and they're not, there's the fact that they're black is neither here nor there. They're just there. And, um, you know, uh, there's a few of us, uh, me and some younger editorial cartoonists who uh, really tried to educate our, our colleagues and tried to, you know, encourage them to do it, to do the same thing. Um, I know I'm not answering your question because I don't understand your question. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go to let's go to Alden. Alden. Well, I don't want to I don't want to beat a dead horse because you've talked about some of this stuff before, but I do want to talk a little bit about financing. Uh, I grew up in northwestern Connecticut. I was just back there last week, and um, there there's a local newspaper, the Lakeville Journal, which has been around for 125 years. They're celebrating the in August. They celebrated the 125th year. They have always been owned by one or more individuals or families. Uh, have were at one point very good, uh, have been pretty fair. Um, they, they were bleeding money and they've now become a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. Now, you said basically that, um, th that having billionaires buy a newspaper doesn't solve the problem. Uh, is, is there a solution? As I say, they, they, they think that now that they've become a nonprofit, they will go raise money uh, and somehow that will uh, solve the problem. I, I'm, I'm a little skeptical. Maybe, maybe you have an answer. Well, certainly there, you know, there have been a number of attempts to do uh, the nonprofit thing. There's also a bunch of cities where uh, former uh, employees of the daily paper went and formed a daily online, uh, you know, daily uh, newspaper, sort of online newspaper alternative. Uh, and obviously they don't have to deal with like printing and distribution expenses that a, a you know, a traditional paper, dead trees paper had to, to deal with. Um, I don't think anyone's really developed the solution. You know, I want to amend my thing about the billionaires. Billionaires or, you know, wealthy, deep-pocketed owners really can support a, a newspaper. The problem is that today's 
billionaires mostly tend to view them as startups. So even someone like Jeff Bezos expects the Washington Post uh, to become a uh, uh, you know profitable without him. Um, it's kind of like fly out of the nest, little little bird, go. And uh, Dr. Patrick Soon Xiong, uh, who owns the Los Angeles mm-hmm. Times, he's a biotech guy. Uh, and in full disclosure, I, I sued the LA Times and had a famous lawsuit against them. So, uh, you know, my biases are clear, uh, you know. Um, but, the, but he also expects them, clearly expects them to eventually become profitable. Um, I think a more realistic model might be like uh, back when Jared Kushner and uh, owned the New York Observer. Uh, there was no expectation whatsoever that the New York Observer would be anything other than a vanity project. Uh, it's like this is a money pit. It's like it's like it's like donating to NPR. Uh, you know, you donate. You don't expect anything other than a you know than a tote bag. You don't get profits. You're never. It's never going to be profitable. And what you get in return is you know you get a civic trust and you get good reliable news that you want to listen to every morning. Um, that's more realistic. Um, I, I work for uh, a, an email newsletter called Counterpoint, which has uh, liberal and conservative cartoonists, uh, 14 of us uh, together. And um, it's, part, it's partly backed, supported by, uh, by, a, by a, a tech guy who, um, who is also interested in, and he kind of views us as a startup. And I, I think, you know, I, I think it would be better if we were a 501c3 and that he just donated money and, and took the tax deduction and you know basically tried to get us out in front of as many people as possible rather than view us as a startup. And I think, so I think it sort of, you know, a lot of, of the big newspaper barons didn't really expect profitability from all of their properties. Um, you know, it's, it's certainly, it's desirable and these are people in the business of making money. But I think of, um, uh, you know, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Warren Buffett, who, you know, he was bullish on newspapers for, you know, 15 years ago. And then I guess about five years ago, he was like, yeah, I tried and I tried and I tried and I can't figure out this business and I'm out. And uh, he, you know, I mean, Warren Buffett's a smart guy. If he can't figure it out, maybe for the time being, no one can figure it out. But I think I could see there being other models. Like for example, um, the New York, you know, we would have to, we would have to have some amendments to antitrust laws. Um, It's not, you're not allowed in one market to have one owner of like the local TV station, the local radio station and the local paper. But given that the local paper is generating all of the news, it's in the interest of the local radio station and the local TV station to keep the paper in business. So maybe they need joint ownership. Uh, and, and you know, that's something I would look at in a very big way. I mean, antitrust really screwed over print media in the 90s. I mean, I look at like the, the in Japan, what they did, um, they all colluded, uh, the Japanese newspapers like Asahi Shinbun and so on. Uh, they all agreed not to put their content online. And if you went to the website of any of those newspapers in the late 90s, all you would find is like how to subscribe, here's our address, that's it. It was a stump, a stub. And you if you know, if you were Japanese and you wanted to know what happened, you had to pay like seven or eight bucks for the daily paper. Um, mm-hmm. 
And all those papers are much more vibrant today as a result. Uh, they, not, they weren't allowed to do that here in the States because if they had colluded, if all the major newspaper like Gannett and all the other, you know, Newhouse, all the other chains have gotten together and agreed not to compete online that way by trying to undercut each other, you know, they would all be, you know, we'd, we'd have twice as many papers still in, in operation today. Mm -hmm. uh, Jerry. I think, Ted, as I said earlier, I grew up with the Washington Post and her blog. <laughs> I loved his cartoons. Um, as more and more cartoonists are no longer affiliated with newspapers, how do you disseminate your cartoons? Or is it a dying industry? Oh, it's it's a it's a it's as close to dead as you could possibly <laughs> say. I mean, I got into this. There were 800 full-time staff editorial cartoonists. Uh, this was in the uh, early 90s, um, and uh, now we're down to I think 14, um, mm -hmm. might be 13. Um, so yeah, I mean, they're they're you know basically we should all buy a bottle of champagne and you know like <laughs> agree to the last one left can pop it. And which won't be that long from now. Um, it's a completely dying industry uh, because we are like the remora that swims on the shark of print media. Um, we can we have other ways. You know, I have direct support from uh, my my readers who subscribe to my work and pay for it. I have um, clients, uh, freelance clients like whowhatwhy.org. Um, I have uh, I, I also you know Counterpoint. Uh, I'm syndicated. But basically, you know, this is like the, we're, we're climbing, you know, it's the Titanic. We're climbing the mast. The water's coming up. You know, it's inevitable. We're all going down. I mean, there's there's no place for someone who's under 50 years of age in this business at all. I mean, and, and I don't think that's going to change because um, the problem is, as we say, derisively in this business, everybody, um, all the gatekeepers who could change this are word guys. So, you know, people at, uh, at Slate, the, the editor at Slate, the editor at Salon, uh, the, the editor at cbsnews.com, uh, they could, you know, the, the, the editor at The Nation, The Progressive, um, they could all hire us, but they don't want to. And um, what's really frustrating is, like, for example, at whowhatwhy.org, where I'm one of two cartoonists, um, you know, they've told us the cartoons are by far the most widely read feature um, we newspapers have made uh, have done <laughs> reader surveys many, many times where they found that the editorial cartoon was often the only thing that readers looked at on the editorial or the op ed page. Um, so we know readers like them, but the gatekeepers will not let it out. And so the cartoons cartoons as a format aren't going away, but the professionalization of cartooning, you know, where you pay people to just live and breathe the politics of the day and how to how to satirize those politics in a graphic form that's like it's not really just dying it's more like we're being murdered wow george i believe you said you were in russia this summer yes what was it like could you see any signs of the war in ukraine so it was i was expecting to to find a a, a country in dire economic uh shape uh you know i was expecting to basically find uh you know New York in late 2000, lockdown, you know, lots of closed businesses, high unemployment, um, shortages in the stores. And there was nothing like that. I was, uh, I, I was in Mos Moscow and St. Petersburg. And as far as I was able to tell, uh, Putin has really successfully uh, 
uh, sanction-proofed the the Russian economy. And like that's not to say that things might not you know all fall apart next week, but but that certainly hasn't been the case so far. Um, the uh, stores were bustling. Uh, you know, trains were. You know, I, I rode first class on the bullet train to uh, St. Petersburg. It was packed full of rich Russians on the same thing. Um, uh, I definitely saw, you know, well-run cities that had very far fewer homeless people um, than, you know, I have here in Manhattan. Um, it was, I mean, I was impressed. I was like, man, things are rocking. Russia's doing great. And so when you talk to uh, the signs of the war, uh, sometimes you see uh, there's a very subtle, some government buildings have the Z logo uh, on a giant poster in front of them. Uh, there's in the, in the metro uh, on movable signs, sometimes it'll flash the Z logo for the war. But mm -hmm. basically, people don't like to talk about it. Um, you know, I found uh, among the people I talked to, probably about three quarters of them were in favor of it, and a quarter of them were opposed. Um, I, among the opponents, like I had a waiter, uh, I had to pay cash for everything because my visa and MasterCard credit and debit cards don't work there because of the sanctions. Um, so I had to pay for everything in cash, right? You check into the hotel. It's like, this will be $3,000 like, Oh, <laughs> you know, in cash. Um, so you, you know, there's, there's no getting around it and you can't, and even exchanging into rubles is hard. But anyway, the point is, uh, I, I asked the, the waiter was like, oh, so uh, cash or, 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 or uh, credit. I was like, credit. And, he, and I'm like, I'm American. He goes, oh, yes, this is thanks to our very intelligent president, Mr. Putin. So there, but then there's other people who are like, who the fuck, you know, who do those fucking Ukrainians think they are? You know, like they, they think they can fuck with us. Like they're right on our border. Like, you know, would you Americans put up with this shit from Canada? Um, so <laughs> it was it was interesting. Uh, the I would say really most Russians aren't spending a lot of time thinking about Ukraine. It's not affecting most people's lives. Um, it's they they you know unemployment is low, inflation, and you know one really interesting takeaway for me, and I this I had I was surprised by. Um, they said that uh, basically the Western and American tourists who disappeared, um, they disappeared two years ago at the beginning of the pandemic. And they just didn't, because of the war, they just didn't come back. So in other words, this is just like a continuation for them. It's not like they, they noticed like, okay, we went to war and now people aren't coming and now we've been cut off from the rest of the world. They feel like they were cut off from the rest of the world two years ago. and. Um, that was just an interesting perspective that, you know, came as a surprise. Mm -hmm. Ham. It sounds like you're describing a. Um, it sounds like you're describing a nice fat capitalist society with with bullet trains and shops and and restaurants and all that kind of stuff. Um, if that's the case, what are the what are all these demonstrations in the streets all about? Well, I mean, you know, um, even when I mean, Putin enjoys about three quarters popularity, but you know, that still doesn't mean you don't know, has the other quarter, right? I mean, um, you know, Putin's politics are far right and they they have been right wing mm -hmm. for a long time. And uh, you know, the, the especially younger generations really have chafed under those politics. And 
um, and also, it, you know, his alliance with the, the Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, I think, um, you know, I think there's a lot of people who have been, you know, waiting for the chance to protest, but obviously um, it is any kind of sustained major protest is is not tolerated, right? So there, uh, I did see some limited uh, things, like for example, opposition newspapers were being sold openly on the street. Um, so it's some opposition is allowed, but you know, just be, I think it's uh, in the same way that during you know the Reagan years, there were a lot of people who he, Reagan was a popular president, but a lot of a, a lot of people like me opposed him and protested him. Um, and we lived in a big fat capitalist society. I think it's exactly the same thing there. Mm -hmm. uh, Hampton. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with what you said that this, that lying and deception have been around forever. Uh, and you said that in your blog or whatever it was. Um, but what, what seems to be totally new in the Trump era is total denial. Uh, like like uh, when Trump stated that there had been vast numbers of people at his inauguration and all these photographs were uh, published showing that wasn't true in the slightest, but he still said it. And, and he and the people with him, they keep saying all these blatantly. Uh, it, it's, it's never been so blatant and it's never been so contrary to the stuff that's right in front of your eyes. And I'm not sure what to make of that. Tell me, Ted. <laughs> well, I mean, first of all, it has always worked for him, right? I mean, look, I, I was starting to read some of the uh, excerpts of uh, Letitia James's uh, complaint, uh, civil lawsuit against Trump that she filed yesterday. Um, and, you know, things like he, 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 he said that his apartment was three times bigger than it really is. I mean, you know, that's a public record. You can just go to City Hall and and get a copy of you know the plans for Trump Tower. Um, you know anybody can look at them, but nobody ever bothered to. And he was just figuring. He always figures nobody bothers to check. Um, Trump is a troll, and he has come. He has sort of come into something. He has figured something out that is very effective and brilliant, which is that people don't really care about. The truth. What they care about is a is the sense that someone's fighting for them, and even if they're willing to lie on behalf of that those that particular ideology, like they don't care. Um, you know, I mean, I, I'm kind of thinking like we have certainly seen antecedents. Like for example, some Republicans argued, and still do, that weapons of mass destruction were found in Iraq. Um, you know, that obviously didn't happen. But um, but Trump has led his entire life that way. He brought it into politics. And, you know, he revolutionized campaigning. I mean, you, you just have to, anybody who's paying attention, uh, whether they're on the left or on the right, is going to have to adjust to this. I mean, Trump, for example, he killed the stump speech. You know, I mean, nobody, stump speeches were always a stupid idea in the age of television. I mean, it's like, you know, why would Hillary Clinton say the same thing in Allentown as she says in, in Berkeley when we have television, right? It's the same speech and everyone knows, whereas Trump, because he's lazy and didn't want to write a speech or prepare for it, just went and basically runs off at the mouth and sits at the podium and bounces off the crowd. And I mean, 
but he's delivering free form jazz, right? Whereas, you know, as opposed to like synth pop, which, you know, the, the stump speech is. Um, and that's why a guy with a $2 million campaign budget beat a woman with a $7 billion campaign budget. Um, you know, he didn't even have uh, organizations in most states. Um, he, you know, he was like, he knew that it, like she spent millions of dollars to build a soundstage to announce her campaign on Roosevelt Island. Um, you know, he was like, I'll just get an elementary school in, you know, in Scranton and it'll be fine because it'll be on television. The audience is not here. The audience is on TV. Uh, Trump just, you know, he's a reality TV star. He's a WWE guy. He understands that. And um, I think he also knows I mean, one of the best comparisons I've ever heard, you know, psychologically is in wrestling, there's a archetype called the heel, right, which is the person who always who who is the lovable scamp who always cheats. So the, the ref turns his back. And while the ref turns his back, the, the heel like takes a chair and, and bashes it over the head of his opponent. And then the, the, the ref turns around, what did something happen? And everyone <laughs> thinks it's funny. And I think you if you under, to understand Trump's appeal to his base, that's who he is. He's the heel. He's owning the libs, not by using facts or you know logic, he, but by just sheer force of energy and audacity and, um, and, and just sort of like, I don't care about the rules. I'm gonna get my way. And uh, for people who feel powerless, they feel empowered. Um, I don't know that this is a model that say Bernie Sanders could ever copy. He's too much of a gentleman, but it's, uh, you know, uh, it, it, but it is, you know, there has been nothing quite like it before. Uh, you know, even when you look at demagogues like Huey Long or, or people like that, this is new. Mm -hmm. Well, Ted, let me ask you when, when uh, I think it was 2009 or so, you called for the uh, resignation of Barack Obama. I mean, when you think about it now, do you regret that or do you, how do you feel? Uh, no, I, I don't regret that at all. I mean, uh, you know, Obama came in in the middle of the uh, subprime uh, mortgage um, crisis. Uh, the economy was bleeding between 500 and 600,000 jobs a month. And, you know, he, he had a, a big opportunity to, uh, to basically be the new FDR and start and put and and really rescue distressed homeowners and the unemployed, and he and if he had done that, if he'd put money directly into the pockets of uh, people who needed to pay their mortgages and their rents and uh, and the unemployed, the banks would have all been rescued, you know, de facto. They would have all gotten paid. The underlying um, you know subprime uh, securities would have all been propped up, but he listened to uh, you know people. Uh, like his treasury secretary, um, who, you know, from Goldman Sachs, whose name uh, currently escapes me. Um, Ruben. Uh, Ruben. Yeah. Uh, and no, no, that's, no, no, the treasury, no, the treasury secretary, young guy. Um, Gaitner. Uh, pardon? Gaitner. Yes. Gaitner. That's that right. Unpronounceable name. Geithner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Geithner. So he was, so, I mean, and I think, you know, I think there's a tendency on the part of American presidents love the handshake deal that they can make with one person. You know, it's like why we, we made so many 
we've done so many like handshake deals with dictators like Saddam in the past, because it's just like, oh, one guy, he runs the entire country, uh, you know, it'll get done as opposed to, you know, trying to, uh, you know, have a democracy that you have, they have to, oh, sorry, Mr. President, we have to, you know, float this past our parliament and get, you know, people to, you know, in the media to support it. And I think this was part of the same kind of mentality. It's like, well, we can just go to the big mega banks like Citigroup and uh, we'll prop them up with trillions of, of, of dollars from the Fed. And uh, and then it was basically, there, in many cases, there was not even, um, you know, any written agreement as to what the uh, what these banks were supposed to do, and they never loosened the credit markets. Um, you know, I mean, it, it was it's really disastrous. I mean, I think, I mean, Obama even admitted um, years later that the, he didn't do nearly enough to stimulate the economy when he came in in '09. And you know, I remember he was he was very obsessed with the idea that he was that race was he thought race was going to be the dominating factor in his presidency, and he was when he came in he was reading all sorts of books about lincoln and i was thinking like no like like the economy is the dominant is the really the dominating factor in your president in the first term of your presidency um and you've got to focus on that and he didn't and um you know there were so many lost opportunities like the affordable care act uh not including a public option i think was a huge mistake um I mean, I think his presidency is kind of like a study in in like squandered opportunity. I mean, you have a president who had 62% approval rating on inauguration day. Uh, you know, people would have done anything he wanted, really. And I mean, look, here we are now. I mean, he could have pushed through um, federal uh, legalized abortion uh, when he had a 60 vote majority, uh, supermajority in the Senate. And he chose not to. He was like, he, he it was a decision. And now look at the results. Jeff. Yeah, I had, a, this is sort of a prof professional question. You are, I think, pretty unusual as being both a word man and a picture man. Mm. And, and there must be, sometimes you must, you must give some thought as to how can I most effectively express myself on this issue? Should this be a drawing or do I need to write another article? <laughs> Maybe if you could give us some thoughts about that. Yeah, so some that's I mean, so basically it's taken me years to sort of uh, suss out exactly how to do that. But now I do have a formula and basically uh, anything um, that requires a lot of backup quotations, um, any kind of background information, fleshing out maybe some quotes uh, that that needs to be a, it needs to be a column or an essay, um, anything where you can expect a reasonable amount of uh, public engagement and awareness of the issue, maybe with nothing more than a sentence or two to uh, to bat, to sort of uh, provide some background or some context. Um, that can be a cartoon. Uh, it, if there is a visual um, possibility, uh, you know, some kind of sight gag, uh, then obviously one wants to explore the explore the cartoon. Um, I do both. Cartooning is generally harder, I think. Uh, and that, by the way, that's, you, you mentioned Herblock, you know, uh, before, um, Herblock uh, was, uh, you know, he, he was a good writer too. And, and like 100 years ago, 80 years ago, it was very common for political cartoonists uh, to do essays, um, you know, well, not just political cartoons, like James Thurber was a brilliant essayist. Um, uh, and uh, most, um, 
trying to think, um, Bill Malden, you know, the William Joe guy, he also wrote a lot of essays. Um, see, uh, Robert Benchley did cartoons as well as uh, essays. So I kind of thought that I was just bringing something back that has always been there. And most of my peers really can write, like the ones who have blogs and stuff. I mean, you have to be able to write to be a cartoonist. You, you know, you, you do. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been really great. Thank you so much, Ken. It was really a pleasure. All right. Good luck, yep. and we'll talk to you work. later. Okay. Okay. Cool. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank Take you. Thank you, everybody. That was political cartoonist, opinion columnist, graphic novelist, and occasional war correspondent Ted Rao. And that's it for this episode of the Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or from wherever you get your podcasts. Our podcasts also stream on WIOXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard. Thank you.